This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson. Carlson, jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, yeah. Carlson, yes. Carlson. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. The best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, you guys know. Hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and with me, as always, for another exciting week of coverage, Brian Calm. Hey, Elon. Hey, everybody. Brian, things are going down. Normally, for the past few weeks, it's been hard to come up with what the headlines should be. Now that we've got NHL hockey, we've had a week and a half of play, we've got a lot to talk about. So let's get right into the first headline of the week. Do both of the Tier 1 goalies suck? A few episodes ago, we did a whole show just about goalies, and the one takeaway there was that Lundqvist and Rask are the two goalies that are in the top tier of the league. They're heads and shoulders above everyone else, and if you could get one of them in your pool, you are set. Now we're five games into the season for Rask, four for Lundqvist. Rask has a goals against average of 2.89 and a save percentage of .87. Lundqvist, save percentage of .858 and a goals against average of four. This is not play for elite goalies. Brian, I have to ask, did we get this one wrong? Are these two not the elite goalies that we said that they are? You're not the only one panicking, Elon. We had someone on Twitter, M. Province, tweeted us that he thought Lundqvist would dominate and was going to rely on him. I did the same thing for Rask in my own pool. And yeah, there's been trouble. And remember what we talked about in our goalie episode? Let's look at even strength save percentage. So this year, so far, Lundqvist's even strength save percentage, 863. Rask's is 888. So maybe we can't appeal to that exactly. So instead... Let's appeal to sample size, and that is the logical thing to do in this case. I was just kidding about even strength save percentage after five games. Let me put it this way. Over the last three years, Rask and Lundqvist are number one and two in terms of even strength save percentage in the entire NHL of all goalies who have played roughly half their team's games in that time span. So first, I'm going to take a deep breath and ask myself, Am I going to judge a goalie based on his last 180 minutes played or his last 10,000 minutes played? I guess probably you want to go with uh, the larger body of work there. Yes, I will take the 10,000 minutes every day. And remember, Lundqvist had a terrible start to the season last year. I don't think anyone expected him to repeat the same thing this year. I don't know if it'll happen to the same extent this year, but I do still think that he is Henrik Lundqvist and he will recover 
just fine. It's too early to hit the panic button, but if you can find someone in your league who owns one of them and who isn't seeing beyond the tip of their nose, they're fixated on those last 180 minutes, then congratulations, you found your first trade partner for the season. Ah, good advice, Brian. So yeah, if you don't have Rasker Lungfist, find the owner who does and see if he or she is panicking. Out of curiosity, who would you say is a goalie who's overperforming that you could potentially trade for Rask or Lundqvist at this point? Okay, so let's use the same metric that we're underrating Rask and Lundqvist with to figure out who are the overrated goalies. So even strength save percentage leaders so far this season in three to four games played, the names that stand out the most that are unlikely to sustain what they've done are Darcy Kemper with Minnesota, Craig Anderson with Ottawa, Jonas Hiller in Calgary. If you can fool anybody <laughs> into making a trade involving those guys for Rasker Lungfist, maybe you can add in a forward to sweeten the deal. But if somehow you can use those guys as starting points for a panicking Rask or Lungfist owner, then by all means, go for it. So then, Brian, a related question is this guy, Nicholas Svedberg, on Boston. While Rask has been struggling, Svedberg has played well in all three starts. He had a 32-save shutout yesterday against Buffalo. Is there any risk that this guy is going to steal some starts from Rask? Or do you think, just like you said, it's a long season, don't worry about these first few games? Elon, who did you say Svedberg shut out? <laughs> I believe it was Buffalo. Okay, just checking. Buffalo, and Buffalo has played six games and has scored... Eight goals, and none of those came against Nicholas Svedberg. I'm not sure that says as much about Svedberg as it does the Buffalo Sabres. Even so, it's a fair question. And look, if there's value in your league in 20 good goalie starts spread out over the rest of the year, then Svedberg's your guy if that's going to be more valuable than, say, a depth defenseman or forward position. That's up for you to decide based on the settings in your league. But I think that in most leagues, he probably stays in the free agent list unless, you know, you want to try and beef up your numbers in a given week and know he's going to see a start or two in that span. All right, so the takeaway here, don't panic, listeners. If you have one of these top goalies, you should be okay. Let's move on to the second headline. And like usual, we have some injuries to report. Yesterday, actually, Saturday's games led to two pretty significant injuries in terms of player name. We don't know yet how long these injuries are going to be for, but let's start with Victor Hedman. He goes out. He was having an amazing season so far. Going into yesterday's game, he had three goals and four assists in four games. That's elite forward level play, but that was defenseman Victor Hedman. I'm sure people who picked him were very excited. Now he's injured, hopefully not for long. But in the meantime, someone's going to have to step up to play on this top power play with uh, Steven Stamkos and company. So Brian, who should people be grabbing on the Tampa Bay defense to account for Hedman's injury? Well, I don't know if they should be looking to the Tampa defense or maybe on another team. I'm not sure who's going to get the opportunity to step up. But we know that so far... Strawman is the only other blue liner on Tampa who has seen power play time or significant power play time at this point in the season. So I guess directly to your question, this opens the door to one more player and that guy might be Jason Garrison. I think it's a safe assumption that he'll get at least a little bit of time. But let's take a closer look because we had some Twitter questions earlier in the week about Jason Garrison. I think people were expecting a lot more. I think they were expecting him to see regular power play time on a high offense Tampa team. 
And here's the thing with him, is all his underlying numbers, not directly related to scoring, like counting goals, assists, and points, they look the same as they did last year, but a very basic one stands out, and that is his power play time on ice so far. In Vancouver, Garrison was a close second to Edler for power play time over the last two seasons, but like I said, he's barely seen any time with the men advantage with the Lightning, but maybe this is a chance for him to jump up. But even if it is, uh, let's not forget who Jason Garrison is. He's a reasonably competent top four defenseman with a career high of 33 points. His breakout year with Florida was now three seasons and two teams ago. And despite scoring 16 goals that year, he only managed to match that number in assists, which is a little bit awkward for a blue liner. So expecting more than 35 points from him would be misguided. And now that we've seen what his role is on Tampa, it's probably safe for you to knock him down a spot or two on your own rosters and watch lists. That said, with Hedman out, maybe he is worth keeping a close eye on just to see if he is getting that power play time and if he's able to do anything with it. But if Hedman isn't out long term, then Garrison probably doesn't remain worth a roster move, especially if your league limits those for the whole year. All right. Well, good to know about Garrison. I'm actually interested to know your opinion on Strawman also, because he had like 13 points last season with the Rangers so far this year. And of course, small sample size, but he's got four assists in five games. He's playing over 20 minutes a game, and that's with a healthy headman taking the lion's share of the defense power play time. Do you think Strahlman, I feel like we could at least agree that he's going to do better than his 13 points last year, but what do you think the ceiling is on Strahlman's point production this season? Well, much like Jason Garrison, he has a career high of 34 points that came with Columbus five years ago now. And so I'm just going to say that that's roughly his ceiling. He has been more like a 13 point, 14 point, 20 point guy over the last few years. But I see a couple reasons to think that maybe that's going to change, and one reason that it won't. Here are the reasons why it might change, and the biggest one, like we've been talking about in Tampa, is he is the second name on the power play to pop up on the blue line. And his share of ice time with the man advantage is way up. With the Rangers, he never played in that role. He was really just getting maybe a 5% share. And with Tampa, he's getting a 25% share of the team's power play time. And the interesting point in this is that his time on ice has remained relatively the same. So in New York, I imagine he was getting tougher minutes, where now he's getting power play minutes. And I would rather, if he's going to play roughly the same amount per game, that those minutes come with the man advantage. So that's one reason to be optimistic about what he'll do this season. Another is that his teammates are just better when he's playing at even strength. Uh, The Corsi of the guys that he's playing with on the ice is about uh, 6% higher, which is not at all an insignificant jump in the quality of who he's playing with. But now I'm going to temper it all with one important fact, and that is that his on-ice shooting percentage, so the shooting percentage of his whole team while he's on the ice, is up just above 12% right now. That's not sustainable. Usually that's about 7 or 8%. Last year for him, it was low all year, just above 4%. And that doesn't speak to his ability. It speaks more to his team's ability and ability to generate shots. And actually, a lot of it is kind of luck. Expect his luck to fall a little bit. He's not going to keep up this pace all season, but perhaps he could be in line for his first 20-plus point season for the first time since 2009. Okay, and the other injury that happened last night is Paul Stastny, who Brian lauded as someone everyone should be grabbing this season because he'd have a more increased offensive role in St. Louis. And so far, he has four points in four games. Compared with Pavelski's five points in five games. So, so far, we're even in our bet. Right. Okay. (laughs) 
But you were saying. Yeah, well, Stastny's injured now, so we don't know for how long. Upper body injury. It's too early to tell. Maybe by the time you're listening to this podcast, you'll know more. But he was playing on, like, you know, the top line, top power play in St. Louis. So same as my question with Hedman, who sort of takes over Stastny's role while he's injured? Who do you want to look for on St. Louis? This will be our first visit over to the site by which we're presented, dailyfaceoff.com. And right now I'm looking at the line combinations for the Blues. And to be honest, I'm not sure who steps up into Stastny's spot. And again, we don't know how serious this is. So we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves in terms of speculation. But I think... What I'd just like to point out is the natural thing would be to expect somebody from the third line to jump up to the second. But the third line of Jaden Schwartz, Yori Lettera, and Vladimir Tarasenko combined for 10 points against the Arizona Coyotes last night. And I feel like that's not going to make them too prone to being broken up. So then if you go even lower to the fourth line, you see Steve Ott, Maxim LaPierre, and Ryan Reeves. And I'm not sure which of those guys would be most qualified to replace Stasny and Skate in the middle of Joachim Lindstrom and Alex Steen. My concern out of anyone in this is Alex Steen. I think he probably does need a good centerman to set him up if he's going to even try to replicate some of the success he saw last season. But again, especially for our betting purposes and for my general hope for humanity, I hope that Stasny isn't out too long and you should probably wait a little bit before reacting too strongly. Yeah, and for those new listeners, I should probably just say what we're talking about. Brian and I made a bet. I have Favelski, he has Stastny. Whoever has a higher points per game at the end of the season gets nachos and beer for free. So that's just a, a running thing that we're watching because Brian told me that I should keep Stastny over Pavelski, but I chose to keep Pavelski anyways, and so far he hasn't disappointed me. But let's move on to the third headline. For this week, what's going on on the Toronto Maple Leafs defense? And it's been a bit of a roller coaster there. It's only like five, six games into the season. Already, Jake Gardner and Stefan Robida have taken turns sitting. Then the upstart, who was doing really well, Stuart Percy, he got sat last game. It's really hard, I'd imagine, for fantasy owners of Leafs defensemen to know who is someone that can be relied on to at least play every game and who you should get rid of. And I guess the biggest question is Jake Gardner, who had 31 points last season. I would have thought that he's only going to go up since he's such a young player. But if he's not even getting regular playing time, that definitely won't be the case. Brian, what should people do if they own Jake Gardner or if they see a guy like Stuart Percy, who has started the season with three assists in five games on their watch list? It's a head scratcher. And Scott Cullen of TSN.ca was asking the same question, which is, why is the Leafs defenseman who was the best at puck possession since he joined the team in 2011 getting healthy scratched and then playing 23 minutes a night? Why is he swinging back and forth between playing and not playing? And I don't know what kind of coaching this is, aside from, I guess, Randy Carlyle's. But there doesn't seem to be a good reason to sit him. And because of that, I would say there isn't a good reason to get too down on him in your fantasy lineup. None of the Leafs D-men have really been doing a lot of scoring so far. In fact, only Morgan Riley, Stefan Robida, and Stuart Percy have managed at least a point, or only a point, actually, at even strength. But Gardner is still doing his part possession-wise. He's second right now at even strength to Dion Phaneuf. All this to say that I don't think you should get too worried about Gardner. Keep him on your roster, especially if you're in a keeper league where he would be one of your keeper players. I think he'll step up and everything will be fine. As for the other two names that jumped out at both of us when we were talking about this, Stefan Robida, I personally haven't seen a ton of him with my own eyes, but reports have been that uh, just not looking so great, a little out of step, 
he's aging, he's coming back from an injury, he's not going to be that defenseman that you can throw on your team at this point anyway, that he was for a little while in Dallas and then a little while in Anaheim that can put up a few points when you need them. I'd leave him on the waiver wire free agent list for now. And Stuart Percy definitely has some offensive promise. As of today, though, he's got the worst possession numbers on the Leafs at even strength. And the second worst relative Corsi numbers, and that is only ahead of Stefan Robida. But the offense might be there. He's one of four Leafs D-men sort of sharing the bulk of the power play time, and so he's getting the opportunity when he plays to contribute. The one and only Leaf that stands out head and shoulders in terms of power play time share is Jake Gardner, which is another reason to keep him on your team. All right, and the next headline, which is still related to injuries, let's go to the Colorado Avalanche and ask the question... Who is Calvin Picard? So after a not-such-a-great start, Semyon Varlamov got himself injured and is on the IR, apparently not for long. So Red Obera came in to play against the Ottawa Senators, and he promptly got injured. And thus, Calvin Picard is currently going to be starting the next few Colorado Avalanche games. So the question is, is he someone that's worth a short-term pickup? And related, we got a tweet from at Shanerton asking... How do you feel about dropping Varlamov for Kemper now that Varley's on the IR? So, Brian, how would you just answer Shanerton's question and also mine about Picard? Give us your overall take on what's going on in Colorado. Let me start with Calvin Pickard. He played with the Lake Erie Monsters for the last two seasons, posting a 906 save percentage last year and a 918 the year before. So not really sparkling numbers. Nothing I'd expect him to really be able to keep up playing in the NHL, especially for one of the worst possession teams and to many people most disappointing teams of the young NHL season. Colorado's managed just three points out of a possible 12 through their first six games, and things just aren't going well. All the problems with possession and generating shot attempts that many were predicting and that we talked about on the show during our preseason series are coming to fruition, and it's too soon to say that the problem can't be fixed or won't be fixed, or this is just a run of bad luck, but that makes me nervous about getting an AHL goalie on an NHL team struggling to keep the puck going in the other direction. As for Shanerton's question about dropping Varlamov for Kemper, now that Varlamov is on IR, well, I think it was actually really startling. It was very sudden. Varlamov strained his groin and suddenly, like very quickly, was on the injured reserve list, which spooks a lot of his owners. We've had a lot of questions about whether he should be dropped or swapped out. But Shanerton isn't the first. And I think, did we think about this last week too, whether Varlamov and Kemper straight up is a fair deal? I think I recall something like that. Right, and I think my answer today is, if you need to guarantee yourself the starts, hang on to Varlamov, don't switch out for Kemper. But I do think that if Kemper starts the same number of games that Varlamov does this year, his numbers, and especially his win totals, will probably be better. We're finally about to find out what Nicholas Backstrom has to offer. He's starting in Nets tonight, which is Sunday, for the Wild. It's going to be his first appearance since a disastrous year last year, and it'll be his first chance to challenge Kemper, who's given up just two goals in three full games played. Right now, I think Kemper has definitely earned himself an edge, but I'm still a little wary to consider him as much of an entrenched number one as Varlamov. So just to recap, if you need the starts, regardless of how they go in your favor, like if your league count saves or games started, Varlamov at this point 
is, yeah, he's still your best option. But if you're looking more for numbers over the course of the year and you want to take that risk and hope that Kemper does establish himself as the Minnesota number one goalie, then go ahead and make that switch and get Kemper. Yeah, I'll just point out that Kemper is currently only 72% owned in Yahoo leagues, which I think is crazy that there's a league out there where Darcy Kemper is not owned. If he's a free agent in your league, maybe don't drop Varlamov for him, but I'm sure you have someone you can drop for Darcy Kemper. Make that move. Someone else will very soon. That's the way better move. I think a depth defenseman or depth forward will be much easier to replace than Semyon Varlamov. Even if you don't have an IR spot, try and keep him on your roster for now. All right, and the final headline I want to talk about before we get into some specific player analyses, just really quickly... The Winnipeg Jets have scored only one goal in their past three games, which is pretty surprising considering all the offensive talent there. Evander Kane's been injured. I wonder if that plays a role. But Brian, should people with Winnipeg forwards or defensemen like Bufflin, I guess, Enstrom, should they be worried that they made bad choices and need to look elsewhere? No, 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 not at all. Just hang on. The the Jets will come around. As we spoke about last week, I really like them in terms of underrated fantasy value. And maybe this is a chance to grab one out of free agency. I imagine that maybe Brian Little is available in some leagues or Andrew Ladd. And if you want to go even deeper, Mark Scheifele would be a good depth addition. I still am definitely in the Jets' corner and don't get worried. Just hang on. (laughs) That seems to be the theme of this week's episode. I tell you some alarming stat and then you say, don't worry about it. It's only been a week. It's definitely a theme. And yeah, it will be the theme for probably this episode and the next, because there's going to be a lot of people, including our listeners, I'm assuming that are, and you, and you actually, you, you're guilty of it too, who are overreacting to the first two weeks of the season. And in reality, you don't want to do that because those people are kind of the low hanging fruit of the fantasy hockey tree, to use an unsuitable analogy. This is the best time of year though, to try and catch someone in a panic and take advantage. It's a great time to sell high and buy low. Yeah, so to recap again, uh, Rask and Lundqvist, maybe go for them. I don't know if people tend to trade injured players, if maybe now Hedman looks scary to some people, try to get him. Lots of good players available that are underperforming or injured at the moment. Actually, this might be a good time to insert a Twitter question into the show that we got from at Danny11G, and he asked, how long should I stay with my drafted team before trades and moves begin? And this all depends on your playing style. I'm a conservative person. I like to hang on for a week or two for any guy who has established himself as a producer in the past. The players who I might have taken a flyer on in the draft or who are coming off a weak season last year that might have signified a bit of a slide in their ability to produce. They're the ones that I would consider moving within the first two weeks, and I have. I've actually swapped out Johnny Gaudreau and Jonathan Huberdeau, and now I have no more Johnnies or Jonathans left on my roster. (laughs) But it's not because of their name. It's just because, well, Huberdeau's coming off a rough season, and Florida is just beginning another rough season, and Gaudreau was a healthy scratch, even though he probably deserves more. I'm not basing my fantasy team on what he deserves, but let's get back to the question. How long should you stay with your drafted team? If it's a guy who's established, 
You've got to hang on two weeks. You have to. Numbers are really wacky over three or four game samples at any point of the season, but we pay more attention to them now because, well, it's all we've got. There's not like another 20 games worth of stats to balance out those wacky numbers. So right now, all we see is sort of weird aberrations in players' numbers, and you don't want to overreact to that, especially if you've got a guy that you really expect to produce based on his history. If it's a young guy, eh, you can keep them on a bit of a tighter leash, especially if somebody else in your league is panicking and dropping an established producer. I'd rather have a proven 50-point guy than an unproven rookie who's expected to maybe reach 50 points one day. So Brian, I'd like to dig a little bit into what you said earlier about buy low and sell high. Who are some players that you would say currently are sell-high players? So when I'm looking to see who's a sell-high candidate, I tend to look at on-ice shooting percentage. And just again, I mentioned this earlier, but to be clear, on-ice shooting percentage is a team's shooting percentage while a given player is on the ice. And usually that'll stay around 7 or 8% for the duration of the season. But again, it's the start of the year. There's been a very small sample from which we can pull from. And so some numbers are absurdly high and players are probably producing at a rate that they can't sustain. And those are the ones who I'm going to try and mention right now. I've got a big list of players who have an on-ice shooting percentage of roughly 25 to 35%. And I'm going to throw out the whole list now. And then I'm going to mention a few names worth focusing on a little closer. So... The players who really strike me as having produced good numbers, but maybe on the backs of an unsustainable on-ice shooting percentage so far, are Troy Brower, Michael Bodker, Andre Burakovsky, Rick Nash, Radim Verbata, Ryan Klo, and Gustav Nyquist. But I'm going to zero in on three of them, and I'm singling these guys out because not only do they have high on-ice shooting percentages, but they are also not really doing their part in terms of driving possession. They generally have worse numbers than the rest of their team. And so you think that a guy who isn't seeing as many shot attempts for while he's on the ice compared to the rest of his team probably won't see as many goals or scoring opportunities for compared to the rest of his team. So we use Corsi relative to measure this. And the three guys on that list who stand out to me as being particularly low in their relative Corsi numbers are Rick Nash, Troy Brower, and Ryan Clough. And of those three, Rick Nash has the worst relative Corsi, but it is also really out of character for him. Over the last several years, he has generally been better than the rest of his team, and he is horribly worse than his Rangers teammates at this point in the season. So I actually wouldn't worry too much about that. I'm really happy to see him do what he's been able to so far this season. And I hope it keeps up and everything balances out for him right now. He is seeing a lot of fortune on one side and not so much on the other. So maybe it'll balance out and come even. We need to watch him a little longer. But if you can get an upgrade on somebody who has produced at a better rate for the last two or three years than Rick Nash, maybe now's the time to try that. Troy Brower and Ryan Klo are two guys that I would feel a little freer to trade and not get my hopes up that they will keep up exactly what they've done so far this year. Klo has three points in five games and Brower has four points in five games. Yet they're both seeing negative possession numbers compared to the rest of their teammates. If I have either of those guys on my roster, I am trying to upgrade for a better player who is underperforming at the moment. All right, so if you're trying to upgrade one of these guys for someone who's not performing well but you'd expect to do better, do you have any specific names of people that fall into that list? Yeah, and I'm also going to go by on-ice shooting percentages except the other end of the table, the players who are seeing a very poor and unfortunate on-ice shooting percentage. 
And the names I'm going to throw out are Valerie Nichushkin, David Perrin, Jason Spezza, Nick Benino, Valtteri Filpula, and Gabriel Landeskog. Now, if we again dig into their Corsi relative numbers, I think there's one player who we expect to stand out here, and Gabriel Landeskog is that guy, and he is standing out. And if and when Colorado figures things out, he's going to be a part of the solution. But if you can find someone disillusioned with his one power play goal in six games, zero even strength points so far this year for Landeskog, Maybe you can move in and make something happen. The one player on this list that I wouldn't jump to get is Voltaire Philpula. Yeah, he's got four assists for four points in five games, but they've all come on the power play. At even strength, he has no points, and he's also seeing fairly poor relative Corsi numbers. I would stay away from him, but the others like Nichushkin, Perrin, and Spezza are definitely good candidates, although good luck buying low on Spezza. And Nick Benino is the surprise of that list to me, and I'm not going to say too much about him now, but I am really interested to see how the season progresses. So far, it's been going better than I expected it would for him, having been a depth guy, seeing some favorable percentages with the Ducks, moving to a Vancouver team that struggled last year. But he's off to a half-decent start. He has two points in four games, and his underlying numbers are surprisingly good. So let's wait and see what happens with him. Okay, yeah, and like you said with Jason Spezza, I don't think you're going to be buying low on a guy who had two assists two games ago, and then in his last game, a goal and three assists. So... Jason Spezza is flying high right now after a pretty weak start. The guy who was supposed to play with him and join him with all the success was Alice Shemsky, who got signed, I think, because he wanted to play with Spezza. But this guy has one assist throughout the whole season, even with Dallas starting to score lots of goals. It looks like Hemsky's been moved off of the top power play. He's still on that second line, but playing like 12, 13 minutes a game lately. Is it time to drop bait on Alish Hemsky, or do you think that he's someone worth holding on to a little longer? Okay, actually, I was double-checking Spezza's on-ice shooting percentage numbers, and it seems that they have corrected since the time I researched and the time we're recording. So maybe he's not such a buy-low candidate, especially after those games, like you said. But let's talk about Hemsky, who has seen, I think the best way to describe his season so far is unfortunate. He's only getting about 11 to 12 minutes a game, and he's not doing a whole lot with them. He has pretty poor possession numbers. His on-ice shooting percentage is quite low, which contributes to a low PDO, which is a rough measure of how much luck a player is seeing or not seeing. And it's done based on a combination of on-ice shooting percentage and on-ice save percentage. And I already referenced his on-ice shooting percentage. And Hemsky's on-ice save percentage, so the percentage of shots that are stopped at even strength while he's on the ice, is at 850 which is bound to go up. However, his own possession numbers and his time on ice is a little startling for me. I don't know where this is going to go with him. Everything was looking so promising after his kind of revival with the Sens, or at least a revival in the spotlight compared to what people saw in Edmonton. And I'm not sure how the season plays out for him right now. I think I'd be inclined, no, I know I'd be inclined to keep him and give him another five or ten games to see what happens to him and how Lindy Ruff uses him. All right, so that's one of the harder ones. It's a little easier to hold on to someone who's not performing, but at least still getting minutes and opportunities, but to hold on to someone who's, you know, on the third line now. Actually, I just looked at left wing lock. And in the last game, he played with Vernon Fiddler and Curtis McKenzie. So not exactly the line mates we were hoping for when he signed with Dallas. But okay, let's uh, take your advice, all of us Hemsky owners, and see if he can improve over the next 
couple of weeks, or at least if his opportunities improve. But let's jump to the other end of the spectrum. Here's a guy who's doing so well that I wonder if he's a sell high or just a hang on because he's freaking amazing. Patrick Hornqvist has four goals and four assists for eight points in four games so far this season. He's playing on the top line with Crosby and Kunitz on the top power play, all that good stuff. And maybe the most amazing stat, he has 28 shots on goal. He had 12 shots on goal yesterday against the Islanders. So Patrick Hornqvist, who was a good player last season with Nashville, like he's been good for a while, but you know couldn't put up too many points because Nashville just doesn't score many goals. Now with this golden opportunity, he seems to be in the prime of his career. He's 28. Is this guy a sell high since he's clearly performing better than he will at the end? He's not going to have two points per game. But yeah, is he, an, is he a point per game player at this point or someone that should be more like a 60 point guy and someone you should sell high on now? Okay, well, his career high is 53 points. That was last year with the Nashville Predators and all his underlying numbers were fairly sound. His shooting percentage was sound. And he was with Nashville, like 53 points on Nashville is usually about like 63 or 65 on a team that plays a more offensive game. And if you look at his numbers so far with Pittsburgh, everything has remained steady or better. You talked about his rate of shots on goal, Elon, and he's over four games only, of course, but he's doubled his shots per 60 rate compared to what he did over the last two years in Nashville. The other big change that I've seen is... Obviously, his teammates, they are much better at driving possession than his line mates were in Nashville, and he's obviously going to benefit from that. So I don't think that makes him a sell-high candidate. I think it makes him a really good player who is finally in a really good situation where he can put up points. I would say enjoy it. If you were lucky enough to draft him, or smart enough to draft him, I should say, at the beginning of the season, I think this is someone you can sit and enjoy. Of course, if you can trade him for like a bona fide 70 or 80 point player, go for it. I don't know how many takers you'll find for that, except maybe Penn's fans, but I think he'll be a fun guy to cheer for this season. And for me, there's value in that. That's sort of like a, a gutty thing to say, but there it is. I have a gut too. Even mathy nerdy stats Brian has a gut. Okay, yeah, so it sounds like you're saying that he could potentially achieve 80 points, which would be very exciting, but obviously there's other people who are more for sure to approach that mark. I wonder if you could maybe, like, sell Hornquist for someone like Kessel right now. I don't know how many leagues you'd be able to get away with that, but I'd be interested to know if any of our listeners could pull that off. Yeah, especially with the glut of Leafs fans found in fantasy hockey. I would do that if I could get Kessel back. I don't think you can, though. Good try. Yeah, well, maybe someone is scared about how he has no points in his last two games, so they're going to be ready to sell on Kessel. Yeah, he started out with two games with no points, then two games with five points, then two games with no points, so here come another five points. Well, I'm excited as a Kessel owner. And a Hornquist owner. What a guy. Yeah, I'm pretty great. So, Brian, I guess we should start planning to close out the show. I'd love to keep chatting, but I know you have some other players you wanted to talk about. So how about you just give us sort of a lightning round, you know, your players of note for the week. Okay, let's start by revisiting Brock Nelson, who is one of the hottest names of this early fantasy season. And it's still early to project his success one way or the other, but we do know a little bit more this week than we did last week. And I'm going to base this on a fantastic article that was posted up on Islander Analytics by Garrick16, and we'll link to it in this week's show notes, as well as the Scott Cullen article that I mentioned earlier. And this article on Islander Analytics called Nelson's Offense Disappointing. 
Do you agree, Elon? Well, he has eight points in five games, so if that's disappointing, then I'd like to know what this guy was hoping for. Okay, so let me be more specific. I don't want to sell the author short. So the article was written after the Islanders' third game of the year, and that was a game in which Nelson scored his fourth goal of the season. But the number that stood out to the author was 80%. That was Nelson's shooting percentage after three games, meaning he saw four of the five shots he'd taken get past the keeper. So since the article was written, let's fast forward. The Islanders have played two more games, and Elon, can you guess what Brock Nelson's shooting percentage is? Well, he hasn't scored any more goals, so definitely hasn't gone up, so could only have gone down unless he hasn't taken any shots at all. Ah, you got it. So it remains at 80%. He hasn't scored a goal in that time, so that must mean that, like you said, he hasn't taken a shot on goal in the last two games. And is that good in fantasy hockey? Well, not if you're looking for goals. He did get an assist last game. Okay, sure, he got an assist, but the cause for concern is that Nelson simply, he's not even taking any more shots on goal than he did last year when he averaged fewer than two per game, which is not good to start with. By the end of last season, he had a reasonable shooting percentage of 10.6%, but that can't be the number that we expect to rise this year. As Garrick16 noted in the article, volume is the key to goal scoring, and if Nelson doesn't ramp up his own shot totals from the 132 shots on goal he took last year, you can expect him probably to land around 14 goals once again, despite his hot start. So if you already have him on your roster, or you're watching him, or you're involved in some trade negotiations around him, what you want to do is keep an eye on his game-to-game shot attempt and shot on goal totals to stay on top of whether he's really ready to make goal scoring strides this year. In his last four games, he has 0, 0, 1, and 1 shots on goal. It seems like Brock Nelson is this year's Tomash Hurdle for us. Really hot start. We talked about him every week, and we'll see if he can keep it up. Hopefully he won't get injured for the rest of the season like Hurdle did. But uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like Brock Nelson is the huge uh, star that it seemed like he was after the first two games. Another player who seems like a suddenly huge star after the first few games of the season is the New Jersey Devils' Damon Severson. He stepped right into Mark Fain's spot on the New Jersey Devils chart and leads the Devils in Corsi four games into the season. He and Andy Green are actually the only two defensemen on the team with positive possession numbers at even strength, and Severson is managing to do this while seeing fewer offensive zone starts than his teammates, but also weaker competition. He's only picked up one power play point so far, which was an assist versus Florida, but is second only to Marek Zidlitschke in terms of how the team's blue liners are sharing minutes with the man advantage. You might note that he is ahead in power play time of Eric Jelena, which is a little surprising at this point of the season. The most encouraging number I see for Severson is his shots on goal numbers. He's picking up two or three shots a game, and thanks to a monsterly but unlikely to repeat eight shots on goal versus Washington. His shots per 60 rate is sky high and puts him alongside noted studs like Bufflin, Carlson, and Chara. Right behind him, though, are Mike Stanton and Simon Dupre. In other words, this can all change very quickly. He's worth a look in deep leagues as your third and fourth defenseman at this point, and definitely worth watching. I'm curious to see where he sets the bar for himself this season. Yeah, actually, after that great game against Washington, where the Devils did lose 6-2, to two, but Severson scored both of the goals and had all of those shots, we got a couple of tweets asking if one should drop Eric Jelena and pick up Severson instead, since it seemed like he's sort of jumping ahead of him in the depth chart. Who would you rather have right now, Brian, Jelena or Severson? Well, Severson is seeing the power play time, the possession numbers, 
and the production all better than Jelena in those categories. So I would take Severson. It's early in the season. It's so easy to make a rash decision based on a small sample size. But I guess, I don't know, in what I've been reading about Severson and what I've seen, I like the way he's trending. It's a cautious Severson over Jelena right now that will hopefully be corroborated by his play over the rest of the season. To finish this lightning round, let's take a quick look at the two players we've had the most questions about over the last week. And the answer is the same for both of them. Hold on. Calm down. Whoa there. And the two players are Tori Krug and Tanner Pearson, but they're different sides of the hold on coin. Yeah, so for Tori Krug, he went scoreless for his first five games of the year. And we definitely got a lot of tweets. Should I be dropping Krug for Severson? Should I be dropping Krug for Vatanen or any of the defensemen who have sort of become noteworthy in the past couple of weeks? And Brian was always responding, well, you should probably hold on to Krug. Uh, It's too early to tell. And, you know, the questions about him have kind of slowed down since he has two points in his last two games. You know, he's a young, promising defenseman on Boston. He's playing good minutes. And I agree with you, Brian. You definitely don't want to be selling on Krug right now. And also, I'm sure the questions will stop, at least for a little while, since he's starting to put points on the score sheet. Yeah, his shots on goal numbers are great. He has 19 shots over seven games played. His possession numbers are good. He's still seeing a really nice share of the Bruins' power play time. Hang in there with him. But the person you should hang on before picking up is definitely Tanner Pearson. I'm just going to cite one number because it constitutes enough in my mind to hold off. He's seeing a PDO right now of 117. Now that number should stick to 100 over the course of the season. So that means it's going to go down in accordance with his future production. At least that's what all logic tells us. Being within a couple points of 100 up or down is usually like a normal fluctuation, but being 17 points above is not normal. He is seeing an incredibly high on-ice shooting percentage and a fairly good on-ice save percentage. Don't buy in too quickly. Do not give up an established guy to get Tanner Pearson before anyone else does. We've had so many questions, and I keep reminding people on Twitter that the Kings are notoriously low-scoring, a bottom-five goal-scoring team last season. They're not a great fantasy team if you don't have Anze Kopitar or Justin Williams or Jeff Carter. Marion Gabrick would be on that list if he were healthy, and Tyler Toffoli might be making his way onto that list, but Tanner Pearson is not yet making his way onto that list. You can leave him in the list of free agents. Yeah, and for those that aren't sure why Brian's even talking about Tanner Pearson, he's put up four goals and two assists in his first five games this season, and that's why everyone's, you know, really clamoring about him. The thing for me that makes me not want to jump on him without even looking at some of these advanced stats are his time on ice numbers. He hasn't cracked 15 minutes in a game yet, so he's not one of the go-to guys for the Kings. I'm sure they're very happy with the production he's giving them, but there's no way he keeps this up. And Elon, we're low on time, so I'm just going to rhyme off a bunch of names of players that you might want to consider for acquisitions that you can do your own research on this week. Nick Foligno, Lee Stempniak, Alex Tange, and TJ Brody are all worth a look if you're looking to replace the bottom of your roster. And guys who I would be wary of picking up or keeping on my team at this point include Johnny Gaudreau, Evgeny Kuznetsov, and Elias Lindholm on the Carolina Hurricanes. If they're still a hot topic, we will get to them in greater detail next week, but keep those names in mind as you're looking through your fantasy roster. And one more name I'll mention before we close out is the same name I mentioned last week before we closed out, because I just want to brag a little bit. We mentioned that Trevor Daly 
was really shooting up the depth chart in Dallas, getting the number one power play time, and he was someone that you should definitely try to grab. And since we mentioned him, he's got two goals and one assist in his last three games. So congratulations for those of you who took our advice there. Of course, I'm sure people could tweet back at us at Keeping Carlson to tell us all the people we recommended that haven't panned out, but we might as well at least toot our horns for the ones that do. But please do hold us accountable. I would like to know in retrospect. I don't always remember the ones we get wrong. Confirmation bias. Sure. But I mean, with a guy like Daly, it wasn't too hard to predict. I mean, when you're on this high-powered offensive team with Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan, and you're playing the most minutes or tied for the most minutes on defense and on the top power play, I mean, what can you expect? But that's it for another episode. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and sticking with us. We are still at the very beginning of the season, and we're looking forward to a full season of content just like this. So let us know what you think. If you're happy with what we've put out, if you have any suggestions, if you have any fantasy hockey questions, looking for advice, tweet at us at Keeping Carlson. We love to hear you. You could also subscribe to us on iTunes so that you'll get every episode delivered to your listening device. And once you're on iTunes, if you don't mind throwing us a five-star review, that definitely helps us out. That's probably the best way you could help us out right now because we're trying to obviously attract more listeners. And I'm sure you don't want to tell the other people in your league, but you could at least tell you know the rest of the world via a five-star review on iTunes. And with that, let's cue the outro music. And Brian, why don't you go ahead and read the credits? This episode of Keeping Carlson was presented by Daily Faceoff, and to research the show, we used the following resources. Daily Faceoff, Left Wing Lock, Behind the Net, War on Ice, Hockey Analysis, Puckalytics, and Yahoo Sports and ESPN Fantasy Hockey. Great job this week, Brian, and looking forward to next week's episode. Keep on keeping Carlson.